Luke 14. This is on page, should be... Eight seventy-three for those who are looking for it. This is Luke fourteen. But before we jump into it, let's go ahead and pray. Get our hearts ready for this. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the rugged cross. We thank you for your humiliation. We thank you that you were willing to be the fount of every blessing, and that you humbled yourself to be that for us. Father, we ask that we might um, humble ourselves in turn, that we might seek the exaltation that came in Christ with him. Father, would you make us people who love your kingdom and love you and love what you've done. Father, would you be with us uh, as the Spirit comes to you, comes to us in, in the preaching of your word. Father, use your word that we may grow and we may love you more. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are continuing in our sermon series, Encounters with Jesus, as we look at Jesus coming to everyday people in everyday places and situations. Now, last week, we talked about how Jesus came to the rich young ruler with a challenging, kind of all-encompassing love, a love that would challenge him to love nothing but Jesus, that he would cast aside all other loves and find himself dedicated to Jesus alone. Now that was a challenging message because it challenged us to have, to have no other loves before him. Now this is an equally challenging Jesus that we're going to see today. We're going to see a Jesus that is utterly and devastatingly honest, that challenges people, that lays people's hearts bare before them. Now if we come to read the Gospels, we flip through some of these stories, I think we can underestimate what Jesus is really saying to some of these people. He is very honest with them, and he challenges them deeply into the core. So today we're going to see Jesus at a dinner party. He's, this is, we have dinner parties all the time. He is invited over to this Pharisee's house, and he observes the Pharisees, observes what they're living for, and he puts it right before them. He calls them out for the way that they live their lives. And so we have to be ready to receive this Jesus who is brutally honest. This is a Jesus that is hard. This is probably the Jesus that I have the most trouble with. Because sometimes it feels like he's not loving people. He's just kind of really giving people devastating news. But I think we're going to see that Jesus does that because he loves the kingdom of God. He loves seeing the principles of the kingdom played out because those are the things that he loves. And he protects the things that he loves. And he is honest when those things are not being played out in our lives. And so we're going to see Jesus' challenge to the Pharisees in the midst of this banquet in three ways. He's going to challenge their reception of outsiders. He's going to challenge the hearts of the guests at this feast. And he's going to challenge the motives of the hosts. So we're going to see everyone here the outsiders, the guests themselves, and the host. And then Jesus is going to tell this parable that presents a better vision for what the kingdom is supposed to be, what this kingdom is supposed to look like, how it's supposed to play out. So let's look at Luke 14 and jump into how Jesus actually comes about this. Let's read with me Luke 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, 
They were watching him carefully. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed that they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the man who invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. When you give a feast... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Because they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who was reclining at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a banquet and invited many. The time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said, I have bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became very angry and said to his servants, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, you have commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to his servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. All right. So first off, we're going to see how Jesus reacts to the Pharisees' reception to outsiders those who are kind of outside of this banquet hall, the poor, the lame, the struggling. Let's look at verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. All right, so it's the Sabbath. This is the Old Testament day of rest. You weren't allowed to do any work. You weren't supposed to do any work. And the reason you didn't work was because the Sabbath was supposed to be an image of heaven. It was supposed to be a reenactment of heaven. And so you didn't work because in heaven, we don't work. At least we don't work in the same sense. We rest with God just as God rested on his throne after creating all things. So you don't work on the Sabbath day because you, you won't be working in heaven. But it's supposed to reflect other things as well. So on the Sabbath day, you go to worship because you're going to be worshiping in heaven. That's one of the blessings of heaven is we're going to gather together and worship God together. Likewise, 
You're supposed to have a special meal on the Sabbath. Because in heaven, we're going to have this great banquet. And all sit together at the Lord's table and enjoy the blessings of creation. So the Sabbath is meant to embody and represent heaven and the kingdom of God. And so Jesus gets to spend his heavenly banquet day with all of his enemies, the religious rulers of the day. And it's probably not the most restful of Sabbaths, but here he is in the presence of them, and they're all watching him with kind of furrowed brows, with pursed lips, seeing what Jesus will do on this Sabbath day. And then verse 2, Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now you guys all know what dropsy is, so I'm not going to explain it. No. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is, uh, dropsy is what is now called edema. All right, so it's basically when your lymphatic fluid, kind of the, the water in your body, can't circulate properly. And so it starts to accumulate in certain parts of the body. So it might gather in your hand, and it starts to blow up to like one, two, five times its normal size. So the skin starts to bulge. It starts to roll over. Your whole hand is obscured. Your whole foot is huge. And when it gets that big, it's called elephantiasis. This is a sickness of the elephant. Because your limbs are literally the size of an elephant's. Cracking, bulging, breaking. And so here is this man before Jesus. There's an elephant in the room here. And Jesus has to deal with it. What is he going to do? Now we wonder, why was this man there? How did he get there? It could be that he just happened to be one of the Pharisee's servants. I think it's more likely that the Pharisees made sure that this man was there as a temptation to Jesus. He brings him to, they bring him in and say, what are you going to do with this guy? Surely he's going to have to be forced to heal him and we're going to catch him at his own game. But Jesus, he takes all of this, he gathers it together, and he makes it into one incisive question. Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, verse 3, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Or not? And they remained silent, and he took this man and he healed him and sent him away. Now this is a great way to kind of Confront people in a way that, that puts it on them. Give them a question that actually makes them think, what do I actually believe? And these Pharisees have to think, are you supposed to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is that what this day is for? Is it, is it a work? And Jesus is working on the Sabbath and breaking it. And these men, they seem not to know the answer. They're silent. They don't have a lot of laws pertaining to healing, miraculous healings, and what you're, whether you're allowed to do it or not. Right? It didn't happen that much. So they didn't have some laws. So they don't know what to do, and they're, they're left silent. So Jesus, verse 5, he kind of pushes them and makes it a little clearer for them. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Jesus throws their hypocrisy in their face. Basically saying that if it were you who were suffering, this wouldn't be such a difficult question. If it were your son who had an arm ten times what it's supposed to be, you'd probably be, oh, I'm pretty sure God wants to heal him. If it's his son falls in a well, no, you could get him out of the well. Even if it's an ox, 
it's your ox, you want the ox out of the hole. But the problem is that these men are reacting to outsiders. And these men, they understand how to care about themselves and the things that benefit them, but they have no compassion, and they don't care about the outsider. When it comes to the outsider, suddenly they don't have any mercy, they don't have any grace, they just want to see the law fulfilled. So much so that these men actually have kind of collaborated together, thought of the most suffering, openly unwell person they could find, and threw him in front of Jesus, not to be healed, but to make sure that Jesus wouldn't heal him. To ensure that Jesus wouldn't help this man. That's what they wanted. Now we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we treat outsiders? How do we react to them? Do we give a lot of grace to ourselves, but little, very little to the outsiders? Maybe we see them largely as, as inconveniences, right? People who are just in the way, other cars on the road, other people in line, they just need to, need to move so I can get what needs to be done, done. We might even react that way to our spouses, our kids, our friends. Just we want them to help us, but don't get in the way. Maybe we see outsiders as people who will help build up kind of our confidence that we are good people. We like hearing about bad people because they're an encouragement that, oh, I would never do that. I must be in like a whole different plane. Bad people, good people. Right? It's, like, it's actually encouraging to, to watch the news sometimes if you, if you do that. Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm not like that. I must be good. Me and God are okay. Or maybe you're just apathetic about the whole thing. That if they can't help you with anything, you're just going to pass them by. Let them do their business, but leave them to themselves. I think Jesus' challenge here is that in the kingdom of God, we are ambassadors. And we represent his kingdom to his people, to all of the people. And so the test of our religion is not whether or not we are nice towards the insiders, the people here, but whether or not we offer grace to those who are outside, who we feel don't deserve it. That's a test to see what we think we really deserve. Now, these men miss that. And they, they make Christianity an insider business. That's all about them. That grace is for them and, and alienating everyone else. That is not how Jesus reacts. Jesus offers tons of grace to this sick man. He heals him. He offers him mercy. And he sends him away with a knowledge of the kingdom of God. What it really looks like that he might be blessed, that he might understand how God actually thinks of him. We are, we are challenged in this way. We must consider how we treat the outsider. All right, so then Jesus comes on, and he, he's, he's been watched. He was watched by these men, and he starts watching them in turn. And he watches the guests and what they do at this feast. Verse 7. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say, give your place to this person. 
and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. All right, can you picture what these Pharisees are doing here? It's like musical chairs, right, when the music stops, and they're all running for the good seats. They're all like sophisticated, nice men, but all of a sudden they're like running to, they're going for the good spots. And Jesus watches that, and he, he observes these people want honor. They want the good stuff. They want it for themselves. Now, what, what is honor exactly? I think we don't have a lot of images of honor in our culture. It's just been largely lost. It's not a, a big Western concept. I think the place that we see honor the best in our kind of modern culture is probably the Olympics, right? Those men are up on, like huge, burly guys go up on that podium and they start weeping. Now, what, why is it such a huge deal? It's because of the honor of getting that gold medal. Being kind of proclaimed before everyone that you are the best, you are worthy, you are valuable. Publicly, kind of proclaiming that. That is honor. And I think that's something that, that everyone, when they get that, they, they do come to tears. That is something that we want. We want to be proclaimed as worthy and valuable. And for at this dinner party, a little taste of that honor is to sit in a good seat. To maybe sit next to the host, next to the food, next to the interesting people, not next to the boring people. You only want to make sure where you get your seat. But remember, this feast was supposed to be a reflection of heaven and the heavenly realities. In fact, everything that we do is a reflection of the kingdom. It plays out kingdom principles. We are kingdom members, members of the kingdom, and we are to live according to its standards, to its, not just its rules, but its, its values. That we love the kingdom and we, we live according to the kingdom. We answer questions with our lives, theological questions, questions about what life is really like. And so what question are these guys answering? The implied question is, how do you get a good place in the kingdom of God? How do you get a good seat? How do you get honor in the kingdom of God? And their answer apparently is, you just take it. You get honor by exalting yourself, by building yourself up, by telling other people how great you are. That is how you get honor in the kingdom of God. And as Jesus watches that all unfold, he gives these, these men a very incisive parable about what the kingdom of God is actually like. How do you get honor in the kingdom of God? You don't get it by taking it. You get it by receiving it from God. That when you try to honor yourself, you're going to be put back low. All of the good seats are going to be kind of, you're going to be pushed out of them. And the people in the lowest places are going to be brought up by God and he is going to exalt them. Now, what does that mean for us? Here in this life, we can, we can take a good seat. We can make a good seat for ourselves here, a place of honor. 
you know, we can have the right cars, we can do the right things, have the right job, have the right connections. We can make for ourselves a good seat of honor in this life. But Jesus is reminding us that when you get to real life, when the kingdom is fully here, when real life begins and the party starts, God is going to make sure that everyone is in their right, proper seats. And he doesn't give those seats to the richest, to the prettiest, to the strongest, to the best of the best. When he starts handing out gold medals, he gives those gold medals to the servants, to the most humble, to those who serve. Because those are the things that God ultimately values. He loves those things. Those are the things that he wants to honor. Those kind of people he wants to put on that platform and say, these, these people understood. These are people who reflect what I value, what I love. And so we're left asking, do we want the praise and honor of men in this life, or do we want the praise and honor of God in the life to come? What is going to be our strategy to get honor? Do we care the most about what God thinks of us, the value that he has for us? Now, I know that I don't. Right? I don't care most about what God thinks. I care what people think. But when we think about it, like, what, that's, it's crazy. God's opinion is the one that matters. It, we, think, we talked about in Ecclesiastes how things are fleeting. The opinions of men are fleeting. The value of men are fleeting. So we're con really concerned with how some random stranger on the street passes us by and what they think about us. But we're not concerned about what our Savior, the God of the universe, cares about us. What he thinks about us. His value, his, his opinion, is eternal. And it's lasting. And it's opinion from someone who actually knows. Who knows what is best and who values the real things. I would encourage us to, to find our value in what God would think of us. And to humble ourselves knowing that he will exalt us in turn. Alright. So, that was his honesty for the guests. Now, we might wonder what the host is thinking at this point. <laughs> First of all, why did I invite this guy? Like, he just insulted every single one of my guests. But I'm sure he's relieved in another sense. His, his seat was there from the beginning. He didn't have to choose a seat. He was kind of already had the, the seat of honor secured. But Jesus, being, being the generous God that he is, offers up a, a special rebuke for him as well. And he starts challenging this host's motive for why he gave this whole feast in the first place. Verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus looks around. He looks around at all the guests, and he sees that this is the A-list party. This is the best of the best, the creme de la creme. Right? 
all the, the top level people are here at this party. And he deduces that this man is looking to be repaid for his invitation. That his motives are, are selfish, they're self-serving. They're putting himself first, he's not putting his guests first. He's not putting the kingdom of God first. He's not putting the Sabbath first. Now we think about Jesus and we're like, okay, it's, it's one thing to point out these guys' behavior. Like they were being ridiculous about seats here. But it's another thing to challenge the motives of this man. Especially because motives, motives in this life are never pure. Right? We're sinners. We always have at best mixed motives. And so we wonder, why does Jesus care so much about the motives of this man and why he threw the party? I think it's because this man is in the position of God. If this is a heavenly reenactment, the host is the God figure in the story. And if you're trying to read the gospel from this feast, you would say that God chooses people because he is selfish. That God chooses people because of what he gets out of it. And that he chooses people who are valuable, who are wealthy or the most spiritual, the best people, and those are the people that God chooses to bring into the kingdom. Now we know that that couldn't be further from the truth. It could not be further from the truth. We have nothing with which to tempt God to choose us. To kind of coax him into loving us. And he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything from us. When God chooses us, it's because God loves to love people. It's because he wants his house to be filled. Because he enjoys giving himself to people freely. And so when Jesus sees this man, utterly destroying that, he cannot just sit by. He's totally corrupting the very values of God himself. God loves to offer himself freely and out of grace. Now, how, what implications does that have when we are the host? When we are the welcomer? When we are the people gathering? Are you going to be like the Pharisee and kind of size people up and choose the most valuable people among you? Or are you going to be like God and give yourself freely to people? To love them freely and offer to serve them. Now I know that none of us are going into relationships thinking like, oh, I, I think I can get a lot out of this. I'm just going to use this person for everything I can get. No, no one thinks like that. We're a little more subtle about it. Right? We might think like, oh, okay, like, you're a fun person. Like, you're like, not very fun. I'm going to like, hang out with this guy. Um, like, you can offer me friendship. Like, you can offer me enjoyment. We make an excuse of those things, but what happens when we have those really difficult to love people? The really hard people. Do those people make it to your dinner parties? <laughs> uh, yeah, do they make it? It's a, no, probably not. Like, are you looking for like, oh, like, okay, they're crippled, so I should probably invite them. They're blind. No, that's not how we think. It really, really isn't. And <laughs> and why, why don't we think like that? Well, I think because it wouldn't make for a great dinner party. 
Right? It'd be costly. And that's where Jesus, Jesus doesn't hold his punches here. He doesn't say something warm and fuzzy like, oh, you'll just like reap the benefits of like a warm and fuzzy heart that you like bless someone. No, he doesn't say that. And he doesn't say like, oh, you'll see in the end that like it was a great friendship and that like you got more out of it than you ever gave. No, he doesn't say that either. What he says is it's, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be costly. And we don't deny that. To love people who are not very lovable is difficult. Makes for, for awkward dinner parties and long nights. And it's going to mess up our lives completely. Throw everything out of whack. Jesus says that we do that not because we're going to get something intrinsically out of it, but because God himself will repay. We're trusting him to repay, him to make it worth our while. Him to say that it is valuable. In the same way that we entrust our, our honor and our value to him, we entrust repayment to him. That he will make it worth it. So are we looking for repayment from God or from men? I think it makes us choose, what, what is our strategy going to be in this life? In a sense, we are gambling. Right? Christians, Christians, we're not supposed to gamble. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, fair, a Presbyterian thing or not, but um, everyone is gambling. Everyone is gambling with their lives and saying, what is going to have the most outcome? How am I going to get the most out of this? We can either sacrifice and give ourselves trusting that God will repay, or we can keep everything in, hold it to ourselves and trust that, that God isn't going to get a say and so we're going to keep what's good. Are we going to trust God or not? And are we going to reflect that in our lives or not? If God is trustworthy and God is real, then God really will repay. It'll be worth our while. I don't know how he's going to repay that, what that's going to look like, but he promises to do it. All right, so these are, these are lots of hard things to hear, right? We're not, we're not in the room. It was probably very hard for them to hear. It's hard enough for us to hear. And so I want to focus for a second on not what Jesus said, but how he said it. This is Jesus in a public place saying these very public rebukes directly to people, right? To their faces. And I think when we see that Jesus and we're said, okay, I'm a Christian, I'm following Jesus. I think we have to, like, have to admit, I guess, that we have a kind of, uh, I don't know, Downton Abbey kind of Christianity. It's very formal. It's kind of like English and aristocratic. It's very proper. That we kind of, in our Christian lives, we sit down at the table in our finest clothing, making polite conversation, if someone were to say something really off the wall or sinful, we'd probably at best change the conversation. Just kind of overlook it. I don't think we would rebuke it like this. I don't think we would say anything. Maybe we'd gossip about it on the way home. But that's probably as, as good as we're going to get. And we have to admit that that kind of Christianity is very culturally like 
American Christianity that is polite and not really following Christ. Now, am I saying that we should just be as rude and as, no, no, I rebuke everything. No, but there is that category. That is a Christian category. That is a Christ-like category to call people out like this. Jesus is not polite and proper. Sometimes he is, he is very kind of brazen. He is direct. Maybe even rude as we see it. But he is rude with good reason. Why is he rude? It's because he loves the kingdom of God. He loves God. He loves the principles of the kingdom. He loves a kingdom where there is grace, where there is mercy, where people who are the enemies of God get mercy, where people who humble themselves are lifted up, where people who are utter worthless sinners are treated as valuable. Those are the things that Jesus Christ loves because that is his kingdom. This is the heaven that Jesus chose to create. This is the kingdom that Jesus is ruling over. And when he sees these men pretending to be in the kingdom and trampling over all of its principles, he doesn't just let it lie. Because he loves the kingdom too much and he loves the things that it represents too much. I think in our politeness, we think that we're being Christ-like. That we're being really, really gracious. When I think really we're just being fearful of men. Fearful to stand for the kingdom and to call people out when they're not living according to it. We have to be people who so love the kingdom that we're willing to make people mad about it. Jesus made people so mad they wanted to kill him because he was so dedicated to this kingdom. Now I ask myself, am I, would I be willing to say something so offensive that someone would kill me? <laughs> no, I probably wouldn't be. Not because I'm afraid to die, but because I just care what people think too much. And because I don't love the kingdom so much that I'd be willing to sacrifice everything to see it played out. And that's where, if we're honest, we find that we need to fall in love with Jesus again. We need to fall in love with his kingdom again. We need to love what it represents. Who God is. We need to fall in love with those things so that when we see those things kind of totally cast out, they're casting out something that we love. And we, we jump in and are like, no, that is not the kingdom. That is not the way of Jesus Christ. Both to, to defend the kingdom, to defend Christ, but also to defend them. That they might know that they are, they're not acting like the kingdom people that they are calling themselves. Now Jesus does that for these people. He gives them a vision of the kingdom of God and the beauty of it. He gives them kind of a mental picture that shows exactly what this kingdom should be when it comes to this feast and this banquet. Let's look at verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who eat bread in the kingdom of God. You love this person at the dinner party, right? He kind of changes the subject. <laughs> oh, like, let's, let's, let's move on. Um, <laughs> so Jesus says this, says to this guy, 
A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Now that is God. That is God the Father. He is throwing a banquet in heaven. It's going to be a good time. It's going to be a great time. You're going to want to be there. In 17, And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. All right. Who is the servant? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is the servant. <laughs> um, he is the servant. That's where when he asks us to humble ourselves, to be humble servants, to serve others before ourselves, Jesus did that. He is the servant in the story. He's not a hypocrite. He humbled himself more than we are ever going to humble ourselves. He humbled himself to death on the cross. And that's why he is exalted to the, the highest position in the kingdom, because he was at the lowest. On the cross, he was at the lowest position in the kingdom. Now he is at the highest. Now he's the king of the kingdom. All right, he goes out, verse 18. But they all, all like, began to make excuses. The first said, I bought a field and I must go and see it. <clears throat> Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I must go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. <laughs> All right, so this is the Pharisees. These are the, the worldly, kind of good people who have invested themselves in the way of the world. That is where they have staked their claim. And these are all terrible excuses. You know, he can bring his wife. Like He's seen the oxen. He already bought them. You know, it's all taken care of. They just don't care about the kingdom. They don't care about the banquet. They already have their good things. They have their own lives. And so they refuse to come. Then verse 21. The servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. The servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. So who makes it into this banquet feast? The outsiders, the rejected, all of those good, polite, properly dressed people, they didn't want to come. And so they, they don't get into the party, not because they weren't invited, but because they just wouldn't show up. And who makes it into the kingdom? The people who are lame and blind and crippled. And if we're in that kingdom, that is who we are. We are the spiritually blind and the spiritually lame and the spiritually crippled. Now, when we come to Jesus, he heals a lot of those things. We are still sinners, but that is who we are. We were the outsiders who had no right to be in this feast. We we're kind of laying in the spiritual gutter. And Jesus came and picked us up and dragged us into this feast. And here we are kind of sitting at a table, dazed. How did we get here? That, that is who we are. And we're reminded that Jesus didn't choose us because we would bring a good side dish to the banquet. 
or because we bring a great housewarming present. No, we didn't bring anything. We had nothing, and he brought us in. It reminds us who God is, that he's not selfish. He just wants to see his house full. He loves to share the things that are his with other people. And we see that this, this is a beautiful savior, a beautiful servant who died on the cross so that we who are all crippled and lame in our sin might get entrance into the kingdom of God. So we might sit at this feast. Now that, that should have implications for how we live in this life. It should have implications for kind of how we try to get to God. Have implications for how we serve and how we're trying to get honor in this life has implications for how we treat outsiders. It has implications for even how we do this church potluck that we're about to do. Right? As we go in, we should be humble people who <laughs> are joyful, who aren't jockeying for position. I haven't seen that as a big problem. That's like not the point of the sermon. <laughs> so be generous in line. No, um... Like, we should be people who, who are in awe that we're even here. Because we don't deserve to be here. And as we're in there, we should feast remembering that in heaven, we will all feast together. All of us who are in Christ will be together. We will be sitting in that banquet hall. And we who are the, the lowest of servants will be exalted. We'll hear good and well done faithful servant that we will enjoy the presence of God together. Not because of what we do, but because he has been so gracious to us. And that should have implications for us making blessing bags afterwards. Right? We make these blessing bags for people who are outsiders. Outsiders like us. Right? We are literally going onto the highways and the hedges and compelling people to join us in this feast. Because that's what Jesus Christ did for us. He came to us in the gutters and he said, come, you have to come. Don't bring anything, just come. So let's live out and call other people to live out the principles of the kingdom of God. The principles of mercy and grace and acceptance. Because that's the only reason that we have found ourselves in the midst of this kingdom it's the only reason we will make it to that feast in the final day.